If I were to ask you, what makes for an effective church? What does the church need to make an impact in this world for Christ? What would you say? A large number of of people? A vast amount of resources? A good methodology? A dynamic leader? A great location? This is what you normally hear when you ask people this question, especially those in church leadership and when you pick up books on how to grow your church and make an impact in the world. But in the passage we're going to look at this morning, we are going to learn that there is a lot more to it than just the right number of people and the right amount of resources and the right location. If you have your Bibles, turn to Acts chapter 5. We are continuing our series through Acts, and today we're going to be hitting the ground running. we got a lot of ground to cover this morning. We're going to be looking at verses 12 through 42. In this passage, we, we read about somebody who doesn't believe I'm going to get through it, but I am. I'm going to prove you wrong, whoever's laughing back there. In this passage, we, we, we read about a, a, a church that was making a huge impact in their world for Christ. For example, Luke, Luke tells us in Acts chapter 5, verse 14, more than ever before, believers at this time, and as a result of the ministry of this church, were being added to the Lord and added to the church. Multitudes, he says, of both men and women. So we learn in this passage that this first church was making a huge impact for Christ in their world and large numbers of men and women were being added to the family of God. So what I want to do this morning is I want us to look at the impact this church was having and I want us to discuss the characteristics of this healthy and effective church and I want us to draw out several marks, several characteristics that we see here from this church of what makes for an effective church. Here's the first thing we learn from this passage and from this church about effective churches. First, we learn churches that make an impact in their world are churches that strive for purity. That's point number one. Effective churches strive for purity. If a church is going to make an impact in the world for Christ, it must strive to be pure. If our message is that God sent his son to die for sins and to make us new and righteous and holy, then it better be visible in our churches and in our lives. I'm not talking about being perfect. There's no perfect church, but I am talking about being a church that hates sin because sin is what condemns us, folks. We should hate that. And a church that is striving to be like Christ. Listen, when we go around and share the message of how you can have new life in Christ and we live like the world in the world, that kills the message. It does. The early church, they understood this. Look at the end of Acts chapter 5, verse 12 through verse 13. We're told, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. 
We're, we're told here in this passage that God's people, the church, were meeting together at this time in Solomon's portico, which is the courtyard in the temple, and we're told they were all together, they were of one accord, and Luke says in verse 13, none of the non-believers dared join them. They kept their distance, yet they did hold them in high esteem. So notice here, those outside the church feared the church. That's interesting, isn't it? But they were also, they, they also respected those in the church. Let's first talk about the fact that they esteemed those, they respected those in the church. The non-believing and watching world at this time held that first church in high regard. They knew they were special. They knew they were the real deal, set apart, holy, righteous. This church was made up of a special bunch of believers, and those in the world took notice. But notice they also feared them. They feared associating with them. They kept their distance. Why? I think a part of it had to do with the fact that word was spreading that the Sadducees were not happy about what was going on in this early church and wanted to put it down. They wanted these people killed. It was costly to be a follower of Christ in this day. And I think another big part of it had to do with what had just happened in Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. Word had probably traveled pretty quickly about the fact that two people in the church had died because of their sin. They understood. Sin was taken seriously in the church. It was dealt with, and they didn't want their sin dealt with. Especially not in that way, right? You know, some churches today, they don't talk all that much about sin and judgment because they're afraid it will turn people away. That is not the approach of those in the early church. Not at all. They, they focused on the seriousness of sin, and sin was dealt with. They, they didn't just focus on having the right message, but living a righteous life. They, they understood that what made their testimony believable was the fact that they lived the holy and righteous and, and transformed life. They didn't water down the message of the gospel. They were honest about the fact that giving your life to Christ means turning away from forsaking your sin. They, they taught that the life of a Christian, get this, is a self-denying, cross-bearing life. Folks, that message has not changed. We, people have changed it, but that message has not changed. That is the message we must share today. And, and though I agree the church is to be the place where sinners who are in need are to come, it's also to be the place where their sin is dealt with. It's a place where non-believers are to be urged to repent of their sin and turn their life over to the Lord Jesus. It's to be a place where believers, we're not okay with our brothers and sisters in Christ struggling in sin. It's to be a place where we sharpen one another and we push one another to grow in godliness. Listen, this is as simple as I can make it right here. The church, look at me, the church will not impact the world if it looks like the world and adopts the mentality and the message of the world. Those kind of churches 
fade into the background of the culture it's trying to mimic. The church impacts the world for Christ when it looks like Christ and functions as light to the world, exposing sin and leading people to Him. That's point number one. Effective churches strive for purity. Point number two. Effective churches possess power. An effective church is a church that strives for purity and possesses power. Look at the first part of verse 12 and also verses 14 through 16. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. Wow. It's a very interesting passage here, isn't it? Now, I'm not what some call a cessationist, and some of y'all are like, I don't even know what that word means. Let me explain. A cessationist is someone who believes that these miraculous gifts have, have ceased today. Those that took place in the book of Acts and, and, and beyond, they, they believe those miraculous gifts have ceased. I do not believe that. I hold what is called an open but cautious view. That says, though at times God does miraculous works to validate his message and his messenger, God primarily works through providence, which means he works in and through people and systems and laws of nature that he has put in place. But at times, folks, he can and does suspend that because he's God. But though I believe miracles happen today, you have to admit what's taking place in Acts 5 is unique, isn't it? Luke tells us in this church at this time, you had miracle working apostles performing miracles in the town square for all to see on a regular basis. He says, many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. This is very different. Very unique from, from today. First off, we don't have apostles today like they had then, right? We've talked about that. An apostle, for the most part, most of the apostles were those who had been with Jesus until uh, from the time he was baptized up until the time he ascended and beyond. And then there were a few who were appointed by those who were with Jesus. But Paul talks about in Ephesians, we talked about that, that the apostles were the foundation layers. And we come behind them and, and build upon the foundation that they have laid. And also, this is unique because we, we don't have these miraculous things being done on a regular basis in the town square in Jacksonville, right? This is, this is unique. Now, does that mean God's not at work? Of course not. Primarily, though, through providence. See, we make a mistake at times, and we just focus on the miraculous, and we avoid the fact that God is at work all the time, in and through people and systems and the laws of nature that he has put in place. And a lot of times, people get providence and, and, and miracles mixed up, and I'm about to make some of you mad in here, but uh, before you tune me out, hear me out, okay? Childbirth is providential not miraculous miracles 
are when God suspends the laws of nature he has put in place and works in a unique way. Providence is when he works in and through systems and people and natural laws he has put in place. You with me? So the conception and birth of Jesus, miraculous. Virgin conceived, virgin born. My conception and birth, providential. All right? Some of y'all are like, I don't care what he says. I'm still going to call it miraculous. That's fine. I'm just trying to make this differentiation here, okay? Both are incredible, though. Both are supernatural because God is just as much at work in one as he is another. And we're going to see that more in just a moment when we look at God's providence. And that's a long side note. I'm sorry for that. But the point I'm making here is the works taking place here on a regular basis at the hands of the apostles are miraculous and they are unique. And the awesome thing for us is we have an incredible record here, believers, of all that took place as God's gospel was first advancing and we're to share this great power that God has done and is doing with others. Notice again what's happening here. We're told many signs and wonders were being done at the hands of the apostles. People were being healed, and more and more people were coming. People were being brought from all over Jerusalem to be healed, and they're demonstrating great faith. We're told that they are laying their sick on cots and mats, just trying to get the sick into the shadow of the apostles to be healed. And many in Jerusalem and the surrounding areas are being healed. And notice something else here. Christ is being preached. You know how I know that? Because people are being added to the Lord. And you know and I know faith doesn't come through healing. That gets their attention. But faith comes through hearing the word of God. So the gospel is being preached. And that is what is lacking, among other things, in a lot of these healing services you see today on TV. And I watch some of these just to know what's going on. And what you see is, though you see a lot of so-called miracles taking place, there's very little, if any, gospel being preached. The miracles done in the book of Acts are accompanied with God's gospel message. And the reason why is because God does these miracles in Acts to highlight and validate his message and his messenger. By the way, that's the great power we have today, church. You know that? We have the gospel message that God can and does use to change the hardest of sinners into the godliest of saints. We're to believe it, we're to teach it, and we're to urge others to respond to it. And Paul, Paul said in Romans 1, remember what he said? He said the gospel is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. So to be an effective church, to make an impact as a church for Christ, the church must strive for purity and possess and use God-given power. We must share of the miraculous works that God did in the early church to advance his kingdom. And get this, we should pray for him to work in a mighty way today. Like they prayed at the end of Acts 4, we should pray that God, by any means he chooses, would make his message known and would advance his kingdom. And we should also be faithful, church, to push this gospel message out because it is the power of God for salvation so strive for purity possess power number three endure under persecution this is not a popular one but it's here effective churches are persecuted churches 
So we said a few weeks ago, when the church is being faithful to do what Christ has commissioned her to do, there's going to be kickback from the world because God's ways and his gospel is counter to the ways and teachings of the world. Jesus said to his followers in John 15, 19, if you're of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Paul promised in 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Now some will respond with repentance and, and faith and become a part of God's family and Christ's church, but others will reject and oppose you because of the fact that God's ways and his message go counter to the ways and the message of the world. And that's what happens here in the middle of Acts 5. Look at verse 17 through 18. But the high priest rose up, and all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So like in Acts 4, there is this second wave of persecution that comes on the early church as a result of this ministry taking place in Jerusalem. People are being healed all over the place. People are coming to Christ left and, and right and so in a panic and because they were jealous of the ministry that was taking place the Sadducees snatched the apostles up and put them in prison. And remember we talked about the Sadducees early on in this study. Remember they were the ones who were opposed to Jesus and his disciples because they were power hungry they wanted power that's why they often did rome's bidding and they thought the more people following jesus in israel is bad news for us that's why they were jealous of the ministry of the apostles there are a lot of people at this time responding to their message and joining the church and 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 the sadducees thought we got to put an an end to this and they thought arresting the apostles would do it persecution right but notice what happens this is neat right here look at verse 19 through 21 but during the night an angel of the lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life and when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to teach. So notice here, after being arrested for Christ, the disciples are then miraculously delivered for Christ. Notice the angel doesn't say, all right, you guys are out, no, go hide. Go take off for the hills. Does he say that? No, he says, go into the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. Folks, God wants boldness in the face of persecution we see that clearly here it calls for these guys to go into the temple into sadducee territory and speak to the people all the words of this life i love how he puts that don't you he says go preach this good message of eternal life abundant life in christ and don't leave out one detail and we're told they do just that they entered into the temple at daybreak they began to preach and teach. They endured under persecution, and they made a significant impact. Look at the middle of verse 21. Now when the high priest came, and those who were with them, they called together the council, all the senate of the people of Israel, and sent to the prison to have them brought. So you have the high priest and these other influential people with them, and they call this council together. They, they gather the senate of the people of Israel together. This is a cream of the crop like the Supreme Court of Israel at this time, to talk about 
what was to be done about the apostles. And when they gathered together, they sent Jewish officers to the apostles. And notice what happens, verse 22. But when the officer came, they did not find them in the prison. So they returned and reported. We found the prison securely locked and the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found they weren't guarding anybody, right? That's basically what he says. We found no one inside. Now, notice Luke's description here. He says the prison was securely locked with guards standing right outside the door. But when they opened the cell, he says, no one inside. This was a miraculous work of God, folks. One moment, the apostles were inside the cell, locked up, with a guard standing outside, and the next minute, they're outside. This is a mysterious and miraculous work of God. Look at verse 24. Now, when the captain of the temple and the chief priest heard these words, they were greatly perplexed, I imagine so. Wondering what this would come to, what's going to happen? They go into panic mode, wondering what's going to happen, verse 25. And someone came and told them, look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple and teaching the people. What a blow. What a blow right there. You have to think, okay, they're outside the prison. Surely they're hiding somewhere. Surely they took off for the hills. Can you imagine then what a shock it would have been for them after having not found them in prison to hear they're back in the temple preaching? How many of y'all have ever had someone put trick candles on your birthday cake? Anybody? It's kind of like the apostles, isn't it? (laughs) They think they got them. They think they extinguished their flame, and then there they are again, shining bright, right? So, so notice what they did, verse 26. Then the captain with the officers went and brought them, but not by force, for they were afraid of being stoned by the people. See, people coming from all around and outside the city to see these apostles. They were bringing the sick and the demon-possessed, and people are being healed left and, and right, and they were hearing and responding to this incredible message of abundant and eternal life in Jesus. And the Sadducees were thinking, we got to be careful in apprehending these guys because they have the favor of the people, and the people could turn on us. So their plan was, get them out with very little resistance, if possible, out of the temple and back before the court without any riots breaking out. And they do that, and look at what happens, verse 27. And when they had brought them in, they set them before the council, and the high priest questioned them, saying, We strictly charge you not to teach in his name, yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching. Wow, what a wonderful indictment that is. Isn't that a glorious charge? Fellowship, what if the government officials came here and said, Fellowship Bible Church, you are in trouble because you have filled East Texas with the teachings of the Scriptures, with God's gospel. May we all strive to be guilty of that, right? They said, we have given you strict orders not to teach in this name. Notice they don't even mention Jesus by name. It's so infuriating. They simply say, we told you not to teach in this name, yet here you are, teaching in this name, filling Jerusalem with this teaching. And then they say, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us? Notice they still don't mention Jesus by name, this man. They say, you're trying to make us responsible for this man's death? You have laid the burden of guilt on us? Well, think about it. It is as it should be, right? 
They were responsible for Christ's death. And do you remember what they said in Matthew 27, 25, before Jesus is being led away to be crucified? They said, his blood be on us and our children. That's what they said. So it is as it should be. You better believe they held them responsible. In fact, whenever the apostles preach, they preach Christ and him crucified, but they also preach that the Jewish religious leaders were one of the ones responsible for the death of the Messiah. This is something they make mention of over and over again. They filled Jerusalem with this message. They were bold in the face of persecution. And though they were warned once not to preach Christ, notice how Peter and the apostles respond to Verse 29. But Peter and the apostles answered, We must obey God rather than men. Folks, this must be our response when we get kickback from the world. When we collide with the world, when the world tries to muzzle this message, when they get the police involved, when, when, when someone tries to force you to back down and not stand strong for Christ and be faithful to do what he has called you to do, come back to this verse and remind yourself, I must obey God rather than men. That is the proper response. Notice what else they say, verse 30. They preach the gospel to them. <laughs> They said, the God of our fathers raised Jesus, whom you killed by hanging him on a tree. There they go again. God exalted him in his right hand as leader and savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. And we are witness to these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. They say, we must obey God rather than men. And we have been commanded by him to preach this message. And that's what they're going to do. That's what we're going to do. And that's exactly what they did. They preached this message, this gospel message to this group of leaders. They preach to the very people commanding them to stop, knowing that they could lose their lives in the process. Folks, that's boldness right there. That's how you endure when facing persecution. That's how you make an impact for Christ. You, you strive for purity. You possess power. You endure under persecution. And fourth and finally, you rely upon providence. There's that word again. Rely upon providence. To make an impact for Christ as individuals and as a church, you must rely upon God's hand of providence, folks. Listen, the church can be pure and powerful and persistent through persecution, but there is another mark of a healthy church, another characteristic that is essential, that is out of our hands, and that is providence. Our circumstances, get this, they are ultimately in God's hands, and we must look to and trust in Him no matter what, and know that the success that comes from His ministry is ultimately with Him. Look at verse 33. And before I get into this, remember, Peter and the apostles have been arrested, miraculously released and arrested once again. And they're standing before this council and they're commanded not to preach any more about Christ. So what do they do? They preach more about Christ and they preach to the very ones telling them to stop. And when they're finished, we're told the Jews are not happy. And that's putting it lightly, right? Look at verse 33. When they heard this, they were enraged and wanted to kill them. They had had it. They were done. 
They, they wanted to kill these guys and be done with it. And folks, get this. At this moment in time, it seemed that no one was stopping them, right? They had the power. They were not met with any resistance. They had these uh, apostles in their custody. You would have thought this was the end of the line for the apostles, right? That's not the case. Look at verse 34. But a Pharisee in the council named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law, held in honor by all the people, stood up and gave orders to put the men outside for a little while. So he sends them outside. And he said to them, men of Israel, take care what you're about to do with these men. For before these days, Thutius, a man like Jesus, according to Gamaliel, rose up claiming to be somebody and a number of men about 400 joined him he was killed all who followed him were dispersed and came to nothing and after him judas the galilean who was like jesus according to gamaliel another leader rose up in the days of the census and drew away some of the people after him he too perished and all who followed him were scattered so in this present case i tell you keep away from these men let them alone for if this plan or if this undertaking is of man it will fail but if it is of god you will not be able to overthrow them you might even be found opposing god so they took his advice folks they were set to kill them little to no resistance and this man stood up shares with them what he had to share and they took his advice notice in the previous passage they were dead set on putting these guys down but after that in verse 34 a strange thing happens the apostles find an unlikely ally in a pharisee named gamaliel he speaks up they listen why i thought we said the sadducees had the power why would they listen to the pharisees well in this day Though the Sadducees had the power, get this, the, the Pharisees had the people. They had the people. First century historian Josephus was quoted as saying this. He said, because of the popularity of the Pharisees, the Sadducees would not oppose them openly because they didn't want the Pharisees to turn on them because if they did, the people would turn on them. You with me? So they needed to stay in good with the Pharisees because the Pharisees had the people. So if they kept them happy, they kept the power. And notice here, not just any Pharisee is speaking up. This is Gamaliel. He was not your average Pharisee. In the Talmud, which is the central text of Judaism, he is referred to as Rabban Gamaliel. Rabban is a, a title given to only one man, and it meant master teacher. Gamaliel was a master teacher, a leader among the Pharisees, the greatest teacher of his day. He was revered. He was a very powerful man. Remember, he was a mentor of another famous Jew, Saul of Tarsus, who later became known as Paul the Apostle. And we're told in this text that Gamaliel, Rabban Gamaliel, speaks on behalf of the apostles, and he calls for the Sadducees to not do anything rash. He basically tells them, if you kill these guys, you may have a full-blown rebellion on your hand. Instead, he tells them, let these guys go. These things have a tendency to, to work themselves out on their own, even though we know this one doesn't, right? He says, just wait and see what happens. If it's not of God, it'll fizzle. But if it is of God, you won't be able to stop it, and you'll even be opposing God. So notice what we have here. In the midst of all this opposition... Cards are stacked against the apostles, right? 
You have the right guy with the right influence, not acting upon emotions, but acting rationally, who influences this group to leave the apostles alone, and they let him go. They let, they let them all go. Look at the end of verse 39 again. So they took his advice, verse 40, and when they had called in the apostles, they beat them and charged them to not speak in the name of Jesus, and they let them go. And do you think after that, I'm sure they took a severe beating, don't you? Do you think after all that, the apostles finally say, okay, we're going to shut up talking about Jesus, do you think? Not even a little bit. Look at verse 41 and 42. Then they left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. Let that soak in. Verse 42, and every day in the temple and from house to house, they did not cease teaching and preaching that Christ is Jesus. Folks, we ought to want to be like them. Amen? This great ministry of the apostles continued. Do you see God's hand of providence here? This could have been the end for the apostles. It looked like it was, but instead God says, nope, not done with them yet. And he uses an influential Pharisee to stand in the gap for his apostles so that they would then be set loose once again to continue in ministry. They played no part in that. The apostles didn't. This was God working here through providence, in and through people, good and bad, to accomplish his purposes. God was not ready for the ministry of his apostles in Jerusalem to end. So he uses an influential Pharisee to help free them so that they can continue on in the work. Folks, that's the way God works. He is the primary agent at work in ministry. Get this, he is the primary agent at work in our salvation. Scripture is crystal clear on this. Salvation is a work that God does. I see this all the time in ministry. I know there are some of you here this morning whose lives I've had little to no impact in at all up to this point. Maybe you're here for the first time. And all that you have been through in this life has led you to this point, this morning, to this place, to hear Christ preached from this stage, from God's word. Folks, listen, God does this work. He is the one who has led you here. These things don't happen by accident. Nothing does. All things happen in accordance with God's providence and in God's plan. And maybe God has you in this place this morning so that you can be saved. So that you can be made right with Him through Jesus. Listen, if I'm speaking to you this morning, if God is, is doing a work right now in your heart and life and is showing you right here, right now, today, that you're a sinner in need of saving, if you're here and you don't want to be like the outsiders in Peter's day, if you're here this morning and you say, I want my sin dealt with, I want to be made right with God through Christ, I want to be forgiven of my sin, I urge you today, if this is you, Turn from your sin. Trust in Christ alone for your salvation and be saved today. If you've never made that decision, no better time than right now. Let's pray.